a nice gang of us coming together here on this uh, June day as we gather for our summer session. Even though it's about a week before the official start of summer, but we can't wait for these sessions. So, <laughs> so we dive right in. And uh, as far as the Dharma teaching goes for this one, uh, we're taking a, a deep dive because we're going to visit Dogen. It's been a little while, too long, I think, probably. Uh, and it's it's funny because every time I uh, speak about one of his Shobogenzo fascicles, I kind of get this resolve that I need to get become more systematic about this and really start to uh, to do this more regularly, uh, so we can become familiar with a, a broader range of his teachings from his main work, Shobogenzo. Uh, and this time, I think I'll probably follow follow through on that. Uh, and the the fascicle I chose for this session is, uh, I think, a good one for us to to launch into with this project. Uh, one bright pearl, and as I'll get into, uh, I'm going to be interchangeably. Uh, using either pearl or jewel. Uh, for the most part, pearl is the term that, that's used. Uh, Shahaku, who I, uh, anytime he has anything to offer in this regard, uh, I'm definitely listening. And he is of the opinion that it should be jewel. So that's one of the things I'll talk about. Uh, this morning a bit. And, uh, and I tend to agree with with Shahaku. So but I, but I also want to keep using Pearl at least on occasionally because that's how you'll typically see it. So just so you don't uh, fall under the impression that they're actually two different <laughs> writings of, of Dogen there are just one bright pearl slash jewel. Uh, and the way I wanted to start here is just take a few minutes to talk about how this fascicle fits into Dogen's teaching as a whole. Uh, because I think that's what makes this uh, a really appropriate uh, place for us to start this project. Uh, it, it occupies a rather special place in that regard. Uh, it was written uh, and delivered to his uh, uh, temple, Koshoji, uh, at the beginning of the summer practice period in the year 1238. So to back up now and put that into some context, uh, he was in China from 1223 to 1227. So this is 11 years after his return to Japan, following those four years in China. And if we look at his body of work prior to this, 
Uh, and maybe before we get into that, we should look at uh, where he was practicing, because this has a big bearing on, on this particular text. When he first returned in 1227, he uh, returned to the temple where he had been prior to departing for China, uh, Kenenji, which was a Rinzai temple, the first Rinzai temple in Japan, uh, founded by the Rinzai teacher uh, Isai. And Isai had died before Dogen came to Kenenji, so uh, Dogen never had the opportunity to practice with him. But Miozen, who is the individual that accompanied Dogen on uh, his trip to China, Miozen was a Dharma heir of, uh, of Isai. So actually, within the Zen tradition, Miozen was Dogen's first teacher. And of course, Miozen died while they were in China. So Dogen returns and goes back to Kenenji. Uh, but he's now uh, received Dharma transmission from Ru Jing back at uh, Tiantai uh, uh, Temple in, in China. So he's, he's falling under a different tradition with a different approach. Uh, his approach of Shikantaza, the focus on the practice of Zazen. So it was a little uncomfortable because uh, he didn't want to make waves while he was at uh, Kenji. Uh, but people knowing his background, that he had just spent four years in China. And at this time, he did write Fukan Zazengi. This is his first teaching. So he did get that out there, but he doesn't have uh, students practicing with him. Those that expressed interest in doing that uh, at Kenji, Dogen said, well, just wait until I, <laughs> I, I set up shop for myself at some point. And it, this isn't the time or place right just yet. Uh, and that would take roughly six years. So in 1233, he establishes his first temple, uh, Koshoji. Now you know, he, he can uh, uh, begin to uh, have students come and take up residency there with him. So just before that, uh, he had one of his uh, most important teachings, Bendoa, the wholehearted way. Uh, the heart of that text is actually in our chant book as Jijuyu Zama. So at some point, we'll probably take a look at that. But that was written in 1231. And in 1233, so the year he did establish Koshoji, he writes uh, the manifestation of great prajna, Makahanya Haramitsu, which is a short 
uh, very short fascicle, just a couple of pages, even shorter than One Bright Pearl. Uh, and then also in 1233 is when Genjo Koan is written and presented. And a text that was recently uh, came out within the past year or two that I know at least John and I have read, uh, the Shobogenzo's We Monkey. Uh, that actually, uh, those were transcriptions of his uh, early evening talks, early in terms of uh, having set up his temple. Uh, knowing Dogen, some of them maybe weren't so early in the evening. <laughs> or at least went on for some time. And uh, Shobogenzo's We Monkey uh, are transcriptions of those talks by his, uh, his principal Dharma heir, Ijo. So those, that came out in 1234, the following year. Uh, the next year, 1235, uh, was the collection of 300 koans that John Dido Lurie uh, published uh, a dozen years or so ago. It's been a while, I think, maybe even longer than that. Uh, so, and one of those koans is actually what the the basic story embedded within One Bright Pearl. So we're going to look at that. I brought that along. Uh, but that'll come a little later at the appropriate time. We have to set the stage for this first. And uh, also, the last uh, uh, text that he uh, wrote prior to One Bright Pearl was uh, his instructions for the Tenzo that came in 1237, just a year before the text we'll be looking at. Uh, which was important in a lot of his work at this time. The reason why the writings were so few is because he's working to establish the first Soto Zen temple in Japan. So he's focusing on the forms, the practices at Koshoji. Not so much the teaching. So if you read Shobogenzo's Wimonki, this is kind of... Uh, a, a primer. In fact, I have the the first translation of that I got was was the title was a primer on Soto Zen. <laughs> but Shahaku's translation, as you can well imagine, is is a uh, few notches improve, improved on that, uh, and I, it's well worth uh, checking out. Uh, so then, you know, 1238 rolls around and One Bright Pearl appears. And this kind of launches him on what would be roughly an eight-year period between 1238 and 1246, when most of, we'll, we'll say the 95 fascicles, they're different editions of Shobogenzo. But most of those are written in that period. So one bright pearl kind of comes at the very beginning of that. 
as he's established the forms and rituals of Koshoji. And now his focus turns to imparting the teaching. He had set some primers out there like Fukan Zazengi. Genjo Koan is generally recommended as uh, a good place to start your study of Dogen. And I would certainly uh, agree with that. The first talk on Dogen I ever gave was just the very ending section of Genjo Koan. And that was a good entry point for me. And I think it's proven to be for a lot of other people as well. So we, uh, that kind of sets the stage, I think, for the role of, uh, of, uh, of one bright jewel in the body of work of Dogen and, uh, and why I'm hoping it'll be of particular interest here with us because of uh, the way uh, Dogen considered it. And the fact that this does appear in his 300 koan collection, uh, along that means along with 299 other koans, and which one did he choose for this, uh, this beginning of, of this intensive uh, period of writing of his is one bright pearl. Gensha's kind of, teaching trademark. That's where he cho chose to start. So that gets my interest, I'll tell you. <laughs> I want to spend some time really diving into it, which is what I've done. Uh, so that's, that's the situation relative to Dogen. The other background material that I think we need to look at is this notion of the pearl or jewel. And this is where we'll get into why Shahaku thinks jewel is the better uh, translation. Because Shahaku points out that for this uh, metaphor to really be most effective, it's kind of important that it be transparent. Whatever metaphor you're using, now a pearl is definitely not transparent. <laughs> Whereas uh, a jewel, and especially a jewel in the sense of uh, Indra's net, this is transparent. And this is the aspect of it that we need to have in mind as we enter into this text of Dogen's is uh, to really kind of take a, take a couple of minutes to look at uh, Indra's uh, net uh, to, to see how that represents reality, which is what's the, the functioning of one bright pearl is to represent reality in its totality, the one. That's why it's one bright jewel, not two or three, <laughs> not many, it's one, it's one. And 
the the saying of Guangxia, which is what uh, Dogen is basing this on, is the ten direction world is one bright jewel. Ten direction world, everything, everywhere you look, everything that arises is one bright jewel. As we'll see, there also, they're still there as all these individual things. It's not like everything gets swallowed up. You know, I've been using the Borg as my analogy for that view of things. If that was what was being portrayed, that's what we'd be looking at. Everything is assimilated, <laughs> being the appropriate term for that uh, analogy. But that's not what's being presented here that everything appears as it is, but along with that, everything is ultimately, essentially, one bright jewel. So, the, uh, the term that's used for, for the jewel in early Buddhism, uh, it's, there's kind of a redundancy involved. They call it the Mani jewel, M-A-N-I. But Mani means jewel. That's why, where the redundancy comes, comes in. But I kind of like using the term because it, uh, it designates that this isn't a normal jewel we're talking about. This is a Dharma jewel. So I think even though we're kind of saying the jewel jewel. Uh, that's okay. Mani jewel actually works real well here. So for this next uh, couple of minutes, that's that's the way I'm going to be referring to it. Uh, and it's a term that appears in many Buddhist texts and including throughout uh, Zen literature. Uh, so it's important that we we kind of have some kind of basic understanding as to how it was used in these earlier texts. Uh, otherwise, we really can't understand Zhuangzi's teaching. We can't really penetrate very deeply into what he's trying to convey, what he's pointing to with those words. Uh, and there were several different ways that it was used, but I don't want to get bogged down looking at all of those ways. I wanted to just focus on Indra's net because that's, that's probably the most appropriate one from a Zen perspective. And it's the one also that we're all, I think we all have at least some basic familiarity with. Uh, so, Let's, let's go ahead and kind of uh, uh, lay that out a bit. Uh, the, the metaphor of Indra's net appears in the Avatamsaka Sutra. Also, the trans, typical English translation of that is the Flower Ornament Sutra. It's a big book. I didn't bring that to show. <laughs> but that's where this metaphor appears. And Indra's, Indra 
of course, is coming out of the Hindu tradition. So this that kind of points to how old this uh, metaphor is within Buddhism. Uh, it's gone all the way back to the predecessor of Buddhism, uh, original Hinduism. And Indra, you could kind of consider, and I've seen it described this way, as being like the uh, the Hindu version of, of Zeus. As you may know, they have multiple deities in Hinduism, but Indra was kind of like top of the mound. <laughs> so that... Uh, that kind of helps to, to uh, show the centrality of Indra's net, why it was designated that way, like Zeus's net in Greek mythology. And where do we find this? This is something that's not as broadly known, but uh, Mount Sumeru, also sometimes referred to as Mount Meru, M-E-R-U. And Mount Sumeru is, is located in the center of the universe, at the axis. So it's Indra's net, and it's at the center of the universe. This is where Indra's net is. But from the standpoint of the Huayan teaching, it's kind of locationless. The reason I say that is because it's boundless. It's infinite. It's an infinite net. There's nowhere it doesn't reach. So such a net, how can you designate a location? It's everywhere. One bright pearl. <laughs> so of course in Indra's net, there's not one bright jewel. They're infinite jewels, but they're all in this one net. And the, all of these jewels are simply reflecting off of other jewels. And then those reflections are reflecting. And their reflections are reflecting infinitely. So we definitely have an infinite regress going here. But Buddhism's pretty good with that, you know? That's kind of reality. Just endless, beginningless, endless, boundless. So this is how Indra's net describes reality with an infinite number of facets because each of these individual jewels in the net are kind of one facet that they're all reflecting all over the place. You just get this agglomeration of ever shifting and changing facets. So as far as metaphors go to describe uh, a boundless infinite universe, it's a pretty good one. Yeah? That would be a tough thing to try and get your arms around, even metaphorically. So did a nice job of that, I think. And it, it, it's, it's uh, an attempt to describe 
the profundity of the Buddhist teaching of interdependence. That we still, I think, when we enter into a notion like interdependence, we're approaching it kind of in a linear fashion. It's just that <laughs> we're now allowing some, for some further branching. It's not just the straight line. So we have more going on than just an X axis and a Y axis, for instance, if we want to use analytic geometry as a point of reference. Rather, we're talking about like, like a, uh, a graph, an X, Y axis graph, uh, infinite points, because those axes go on forever and you can plot infinite points. Never end. You can always add another one. So Indra's net is, is a way that we can point to the boundless nature and make sure we kind of stretch our minds outside of our linear way of approaching it. We just still have a tree, but it's got lots of branches. This imagery kind of forces that, like any good koan does. Your conceptual mind isn't going to get it. And your conceptual mind isn't going to get this notion of interdependence. We need a good metaphor. This is a pretty great one, which is why uh, pretty much anybody within Zen or even the Mahayana tradition, more broadly speaking, they're familiar with Indra's now. This is a powerful, powerful teaching tool. And that's kind of the backdrop. Even though if you read the fascicle, you're not going to see reference to it, but it's there. The Avatamsaka Sutra was written about the same time as the Lotus. So it, was, it had been around for quite some time, about a thousand years before Dogen. And maybe five, six hundred years before Guangzhou. So... It was pretty well established in Mahayana Buddhism. Conveying basic core teachings of ours about interdependence, which means nothing has fixed self nature. There's no such thing. We're all these individual jewels. And even that kind of falls short as a metaphor. It's ultimately, because of the infinite reflections, where are the jewels? It's just all reflections. And yet, it is this kind of grounding for everything that's going on. The net. And all the loops, the points of intersection, which is what allows us to speak of one, oneness, the merging of all those jewels, even though they're infinite, still we can maybe get our heads out there <laughs> far enough to see the oneness of that infinity. 
So that's what's being pointed to here. And one of the other sutras that doesn't get much uh, attention, at least these days, uh, is the complete enlightenment sutra. Maybe I'll, if I remember, I'll bring that along tomorrow. That's much easier to manage. Shorter and in, in paperback. Uh, it, here's uh, a bit of an extended quote from that sutra. It says, virtuous man, we're in the sexist era, era of Buddhism, so excuse that. Virtuous man, you should know that both body and mind are illusory defilements. When these appearances of defilement are permanently extinguished, purity will pervade all ten directions. Virtuous man, for instance, the pure Mani jewel reflects the five colors, probably designate the aggregates, the skandhas, as they appear before it, they're reflected. Yet, the ignorant see the Mani is actually possessing the five colors. Right? We see six something, and it's red. It's blue. Or whatever quality we want to pin on it goes beyond colors. That's it. Even uh, within Western thought, I mean, John Locke came along and he distinguished between secondary and primary. Uh, qualities. So things like color, he saw as being secondary. Somebody like me that's colorblind, this doesn't work so cleanly. <laughs> it's like, what color? <laughs> what do you see? Then it, this goes on, virtuous man, although the pure nature of complete enlightenment likewise manifests his body and mind, people respond in accordance with their capacities. Yet the ignorant speak of the pure, complete enlightenment as having intrinsic characteristics of body and mind. So what's being mapped out here is this connection between the Mani jewel or jewels and the ten direction world, all the myriad things. And ultimately, if we get through this whole thing, by tomorrow afternoon, we'll see that uh, this text ends with, uh, with this notion that even in our delusion, that's the one bright pearl. So you're never out of it, even well, even though it's it's in, in, within delusion. Just to make sure that we, when we finish this short text, we're we're very clear about that, because one of the basic teachings throughout Dogen's uh, life was this non-duality. Because and it was important for him to focus there because our minds are so deeply ingrained with that thought process, we go there constantly. So Dogen is a corrective, is always emphasizing 
basically that it's all one bright pearl. You know, this teaching kind of runs throughout the course of his entire Shobogunzo. It's we can always come back to this basic teaching of Guangsha throughout the ten direction world. One bright pearl. That kind of in one short, sweet sentence sums up the whole thing. So what we get in this fascicle is the the uh, exchange that takes place between Guangxia and a monk about this. And then the rest of the text is Dogen's commentary on that. So the exchange itself, kind of like most koans, it's pretty short and sweet too. There's some back and forth, a couple of exchanges. And it's one of these instances where the student regurgitates what the teacher had said. <laughs> Never a good idea. <laughs> and we're going to look at what lies behind that why it's never a good idea. That's another thing that's a very important point that's made in this text is it's not just about remembering particular words and being able to recite those because then uh, you're, you haven't, there's no Dharma with the capital D. You remain in this, the lowercase d Dharma world. You have Dharma knowledge, but to be able to actually apply it right here and now, today, not, not yesterday's teaching, but from that teaching yesterday, it's referred to as like the established teaching, the established Dharma. What is your new Dharma today? <laughs> How are you going to use it? How are you going to say it? If you even say it. Manifest it. That has to be done today. So when we get to this exchange, uh, that's going to enter into the mix too. And that's so important in terms of how we relate ourselves to the teachings. Whether it's spoken, written, any teachings we get. To recognize how do we use them. And the point of them is to open up, you know, my uh, first Dharma name, Matukai, was Dharma Treasury, to be able to open up the treasury. <laughs> Rather than using it in the notion of a treasury where you're storing, it's like a safe deposit box, right? <laughs> I'm storing these things in there. And there's, there's kind of an aspect of that, but yet... They're, they have to become transformative in terms of how they are practiced. That has to be here and now. So any of these types of exchanges going beyond the Guangsha exchange between uh, a teacher and a student, that's often a key aspect of that teaching or that koan 
is, is this alive? <laughs> or are you bringing dead Dharma, the dreaded double D? <laughs> and uh, the teacher's always looking for that. We have to bring it to life. Otherwise, it's it's no longer the, the capital D Dharma. It has to be today, right now. So, obviously, another point of parallel with with jazz, the jazz world, in a very rich way. They have some very rich teachings, but they're not just regurgitating. Huh? Definitely a whole new teaching every night. From the standpoint of great openness. All right, so I think uh, We're, the, we're ready uh, just to spend a little bit of time in the beginning of the text, because the text is really uh, broken down, I, I'd say, into three main sections. The, the opening section is just background about Gangsha. Who is this guy? And uh, Dogen uses, uses this opportunity I think, to kind of connect this story in a deeper way with his students there at Koshoji, as, as hopefully you'll see as we go through this a bit, a bit further. Uh, so, look at the, just the text itself. And I've actually kind of looked at three different translations is in going through this. One of this is the uh, the Nishijima and, and Cross uh, translation. Another one is uh, by Norman Waddell and Abe Mas Masao. And then lastly is uh, Kaz Tanahashi. His two-volume translation of the uh, Shobo Genzo. To my knowledge, I think that's the most recent one. Uh, and this particular uh, text uh, was co-translated by Ed Brown, working with Kaz. So, but but I think the one that I sent to everybody was the Nishijima and Cross. So that's what I'm going to be working from here. So, if uh, Brought yours, uh, follow along. If not, then just listen a little more closely. <laughs> so there. Uh, so this begins uh, in this Saha world, which is funny because we've been encountering that term a lot in the Lotus Sutra here, <laughs> including just uh, last night. The Bodhisattva Wonder Sound was going to the Saha world. So 
This is acknowledging that's the scene for, for what happens here. Of course, because this is our realm. We're not in the world of, of the Lotus Sutra. We're not traveling off to other Buddha lands. We're right here. So in this Saha world, in the great kingdom of Sung, in Fuchou province, at Gensazan Temple, there lived the great master, Shu Itsu, whose Dharma name as a monk was Shibi, and whose secular surname was Sha. And this is the figure who uh, uh, I'm going to refer to as Gensha. I think that's his, the name he's better known by. And in the kingdom of, of Sung, uh, the dates that's, that's designating in China, you know, they designate them by a dynasty. And this is the Sung dynasty, which ran from 960 to 1279. So that was the dynasty in place while Dogen was there. So while still a layman, he loved fishing. That was kind of his occupation, I guess. It may have been that he was not waiting even for the fish with golden scales that lands itself without being fished. Now that's a terrible translation. <laughs> uh, cause is far more effective. So there's cause. Okay. More skillfully translated. <laughs> uh, a golden scaled fish came to him without his seeking it. And he suddenly had the urge to leave the dusty world. So he gave up his boat and went off into the mountains. Now, that is expressed in a way I think we, we get it. All we need uh, by way of clarification might be, well, what is this golden fish? What, that, what does that represent? And the golden fish is kind of this, we could point to it as like the arising of bodhicitta. It's within us, but we can't really define it. We can't get our, our it, it's not susceptible to our usual conceptual thinking. If somebody asked us what, what's what's eating at you maybe uh, i don't know but there's some like the sense of unsatisfactoriness basic dukkha well, if you drill down deeply into dukkha uh that there's something there that just kind of leads us to to think that i need to find a different path that's the golden fish is this fish that uh uh, and we're not seeking it. How could we seek it? Because we don't even know what it is, <laughs> right? So that's a given. But it just suddenly, the way Bodhicitta does, you know, it suddenly comes up. And sometimes it comes up weekly, weekly W-E-A-K. <laughs> or, or if you show up every Thursday night, Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's weekly too. But uh, 
but for others, and this is the case with gang shot, it, it came up full force. So he left his, his fishing career and went up the mountain and ultimately ended up settling in at a temple up there on that mountain where he found his teacher. Kind of a parallel to Dogen's story, with one big exception. Actually, there are two uh, big differences between Gengsha and Dogen. And then uh, I'm going to kind of position this to, to end this, have, have a bit of discussion, and then we'll return to our Zazen practice. But first difference is that uh, Dogen, of course, he'd had teachers back in Japan originally. You know, he was at the, uh, the uh, Tendai Temple there. Then he moved on to Zen at Kenenji. And then he comes to China, and he's traveling all over China looking for teachers, practicing at different places, until he finally settles in at Rujing's place, Gengsha. Once this comes up, he goes up the mountain, goes to the temple, finds his teacher, and that's the only teacher he ever practices with. So, big point of distinction. The other thing, and that gets spelled out in the text here, is that Gangsha, unlike Dogen, Dogen had a very privileged childhood. He was very well educated. And that's pretty clear by reading his stuff. Right? He, he knew Buddhism. He knew Chinese culture, uh, which of course was the dominant culture of the day. Gangsha was just a simple fisherman. You know, he's kind of a Huineng type character who really doesn't have any knowledge. So for him, you know, when Bodhicitta comes up, it's not packed in with all this uh, uh, surrounding uh, knowledge of at least some notion of Buddhist practice. Didn't have it. That's what the way it's portrayed here. So I think you know, and certainly Dogen's students would have known his history, all the teachers he visited, and, uh, and how brilliant the man was. And he's kind of laying out for them that actually this guy, who was pretty quite the master, exact opposite. So don't get caught up. <laughs> Again, kind of looking ahead to what this sutra is going to be teaching us. Don't get caught up in the particularities. One bright pearl, one bright jewel is running throughout all practitioners. No practitioner falls outside of them. But yet, as Dogen would always emphasize, you have to practice the primacy of practice. Because one thing he was adamantly against
against is this notion of universal enlightenment. There's universal Buddha nature. Everybody has that within them. But that doesn't equate to being awakened. Universal Buddha nature, but still rare occurrence for awakening to take place. And to, to remain in that practice and to nurture that awakening, to care for it. But don't, you know, we might say don't judge a book by its cover in our more modern lingo, but you know, I mean, it doesn't matter between the sharp and the dull-witted. <laughs> Another way of expressing it from our channel. getting caught up in, uh, in the, the uh, sudden and the gradual. Or Suzuki would express it, you know, the fast horse and the slow horse. The horse you have to beat <laughs> to get it to go anywhere. <laughs> pointing out that one, one bright pearl runs through all those horses, runs through all practitioners. We all have it within us, but you got to practice. That's key. Because there was an uh, interpretation of the Dharma uh, that was pretty strong during, during the Song Dynasty about original enlightenment, it was called. That everybody is enlightened. And that would have kind of, it was said Dogen trip to China was about if we're already enlightened and why practice. Pretty good point, yeah. Came away. Well <laughs> practice is enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. So if if you're like Gensha and when this golden fish appears on its own, because it wasn't seeking it, you weren't seeking it. But if it appears, then the, the effort that we bring into that, our devotion to that, is going to become the key. Regardless of all the other circumstances, all the trappings of one's life, just kind of drop out of the mix. But practice, that's... That's the key, because this is active. It's not a thing. It's ongoing. It's what will you do? So I think that nicely positions us for this afternoon when we can uh, take a look at, at uh, Gen Gensha and his teach, teacher and his awakening. So what's, what's kind of the foundation for his teaching about one bright pearl? How do you get to that? <laughs> so we want to know, right? <laughs> Even though uh, as the teaching of, of the Indra, Indra's net would indicate, it's it, it just 
all these things coming together. So it doesn't lend itself to a linear approach. Be, be, you know, maintain that awareness. But uh, that being said, I think the story of, of his interaction with his teach, teacher and his awakening moment uh, will help. And that won't take us long to get through that. And, and also, I would expect this afternoon we can get through the basic exchange between him and the monk uh, about this teaching of his. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of then lay the groundwork for tomorrow being a look at Dogen's commentary on all of this, which will easily take two talks and maybe more. <laughs> but if it does, that's okay. We have, we have uh, Saturdays coming up, so. <laughs> so if it needs to be continued, it, it certainly will be. No cliffhangers here, at least not for longer than a week. All right, so let's go ahead and chant out. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. And 